Well, good morning, Word Church. What's up? My name is Carlo. I get to be the teaching pastor here. Glad that you are with us today. Happy Father's Day. We are glad that you are connecting with us. We are in part three of our series on the life of David. Last week, we looked at David, the worshiper. We've looked at David, the grunt, as a young soldier, as a young shepherd. Today, we're going to look at uh, an often overlooked area of David's life. It was an important area of his life, um, and he really wasn't that great at it, but they still had some wins uh, in this area of his life, and we're going to look at David the dad. We're going to be in Proverbs chapter 4, looking at David the dad, and we'll get to Proverbs 4 in just a few minutes. Have you heard any good dad jokes lately? Good dad jokes. Is there such a thing as a good dad joke? I think there is. A ham sandwich walks into a bar and orders a beer, and the bartender says, sorry, we don't serve food here. Anyone? All right, I got another one for you. Why do, why do chicken coops only have two doors? Because if they had four, they would be chicken sedans. There you go. Got some laughs finally. And, and why did the Clydesdale give the pony a glass of water? Because he was a little horse. Dad jokes. I love, love dad jokes. Over the years, I've been called a lot of names. I've been called PFC, private. I've been called professor, doctor, coach, chaplain, pastor. But none of those titles compares to the greatest thing that I get to be called all the time on a daily basis, and that is dad. I have two sons, 18 years old, almost 19, and one who is 13. And my main mission in life is making sure that these two young men don't suck and that they follow Jesus. So I do my best to make sure that they are good human beings and that they grow up following Jesus. Pretty straightforward mission. Almost every day, I try to accomplish a few traditions uh, with my sons. We pray together, not so much with my oldest son. He's on his grownish stuff, not living at home right now, and don't get to see him as much. But we try to pray together every single day. Uh, We fight literally every day, jujitsu, wrestling, boxing, slap boxing, kickboxing, some type of physical ambush takes place every day in the life of the Serrano man. And we laugh. We try to laugh hard, tell good jokes, always keep it light. In a perfect world, I accomplish these tasks uh, in the opposite order. So I tell one of those awesome dad jokes. One of my sons boos me or makes fun of me. I close the distance and engage in hand-to-hand combat with them. Someone or something breaks, and then we pray together that mom doesn't find out about all the mess that we made. That's a typical day in our house. Being a dad is absolutely great, and I love it. It's a great responsibility. It's a great honor. It's a great privilege. However, for some, dad stuff, it, it brings with it a lot of issues. Maybe you're, you're watching, you're here, and, and you haven't had the best relationship with your father. You haven't had the best relationship with your dad. Maybe you're here, and you're not able to have kids, and so this is kind of a struggle for you. Know that God loves you, and you are no less uh, of a man than anyone else, and, and you're, you're enough in God's eyes, like we learned a long, long time ago, a couple weeks ago in our series. Maybe you never knew your father at all, and, and so all of this father stuff makes you really, really uncomfortable, makes you really uncomfortable. Maybe you're watching online, and you had the world's worst father. To you, your father was just not a good human being at all. So even hearing the word dad or father, it really messes with you in your head. Maybe like me, you're here and you're paying attention today and your father left the world way too soon. And so this day and conversations about fathering, it really messes with you. When it comes to our dads, there's two truths that we have to remember. And I think it's very, very important for us to remember these two truths. The first thing is we all have an earthly father. Whether we knew that person or not, 
that we all have an earthly father. It's just a truth we cannot escape. But the second truth is, is more important, and it's this. We cannot let what's wrong with our earthly father keep us from celebrating all that is great with our heavenly father. No matter how bad it was or is with our earthly father, we cannot let that influence at all and take away from how awesome and great our heavenly father is. I want to win as a dad. I want to be famous in my own house. I want my kids to be my biggest fans and what they think of me matters and how I represent Jesus to the world matters most in my relationship with my boys. But, but one of the biggest temptations in wanting to win as a father, wanting to win as a dad, is we tend to pursue the wrong things in trying to accomplish that goal. We think winning equals more money, more security, more stability, more power, better job. We live in a culture that is, is, is celebrates celebrity and it's saturated with this, this hustle mentality and we equate winning so much to status and to sex and to stuff and so we hustle and hustle and hustle and we work hard and maybe we started with the right motive of I want to do better for my family, I want to provide for my family, but what happens is we get so caught up in that hustle we forget who we're hustling for. We forget what it's really all about. And that leads us to our, our big idea today. And if you're here, whether you're a dad, this applies to women, to all of us, and it's a powerful truth. You've heard this truth before, even here at One Church, and it's this. When we pursue things that don't satisfy, we ignore the one that does satisfy. When we chase hard after winning by pursuing things that'll never be enough, we're ignoring the one who is enough. That is God and his ways and his plan. And it always trips us up and messes us up in the end. So we're going to look at Proverbs chapter four and see what we can learn about pursuing the right things and the right stuff and winning as fathers and as parents. So let's look there. Proverbs four, it's on the screen. It's in the version app. Proverbs four, starting in verse one says this, my children, listen when your father corrects you, pay attention and learn good judgment for I am giving you good guidance. Don't turn away from my instructions, for I too was once my father's son, tenderly loved as my mother's only child. What in the world does any of that have to do with David? I'm glad that you asked. Well, Proverbs 4 was written by arguably the wisest Uh, and richest ruler who ever lived, a man named Solomon, King Solomon. And who was King Solomon's dad? David. Next week, we're going to look at the story of how Solomon came into the world, but spoiler alert, uh, his mom and dad didn't get together in the best circumstances. We'll unpack that a little bit more next week. In fact, Solomon is the direct result of David's greatest failure. See, David was an awesome king, but he was a terrible parent. Here's some of the highlights of David as a parent. So like I told you, David and Solomon's mom, her name was Bathsheba. They didn't get together in the best circumstances. Uh, Bathsheba was the wife of one of David's soldiers, one of David's best mates. And long story short, David has an affair with Bathsheba. She gets pregnant. A child comes uh, into the world. But as a result of David's sinfulness, that child passes away. And then they have another child who becomes Solomon. So pause on Solomon's storyline. David had some other kids because he had some other wives. And two of David's oldest sons, get into a bit of a skirmish. David's oldest son, who was the heir apparent at the time, or the, the living son who was heir apparent at the time, he had the hots for his sister. You creeped out yet? 
It gets worse. He has the hots for his sister. He takes advantage of his sister physically. You know what I'm saying. Things go really, really bad. R-rated stuff happens. And so David finds out about this terrible tragedy that his son raped his 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 daughter. So you have brother, sister. It's all kinds of twisted, crazy stuff. And here's how David responds. He gets angry and then does nothing. So that infuriates another one of David's sons. His name was Absalom. And Absalom was really mad that David didn't do anything to, to punish the son. So Absalom bides his time and he waits a couple of years. And then Absalom basically con- concocts this big plan to get his brother away. And Absalom, David's son, kills Amnon, he murders him in cold blood, murders Amnon, David's other son. So David already is is in a lot of trouble as a parent for his inaction, for his laissez-faire leadership, but it gets even worse. Absalom goes on to essentially cause a coup, and Absalom gets the entire nation to turn to him, and Absalom essentially overthrows David's kingdom for a period. David has to run away and hide, and it's a terrible thing. There's war all around this stuff. And when Absalom finally dies in battle, David actually starts weeping and crying over Absalom, even though Absalom wanted to kill David. This is all, I'm telling you, this is crazy, crazy stuff happening in his life. And it almost causes a mutiny because the people of Israel couldn't believe that after all the evil Absalom had done to David, David still wanted to stick by his son. The next time you're at the family table saying, man, these people get on my nerves. The next time you're at a big family dinner and you're like, why did God give me these crazy people as my family? The next time you're sucked into just a bunch of family drama, please remember the story of David and say, it could be worse, right? It could be a whole lot worse when you think about family dysfunction and family trouble. The next time, Dad, you feel like you are failing as a father, just remember, you might be failing as a father. That could be true, but at least you're not David failing as a father, right? I think we could all agree to that, that it can always be worse. So not good parenting at all. And again, I told you guys a couple weeks ago, when I did my doctoral research, I wrote a book on David's greatest failure, this book, Leadership Fatigue. And I go in great, great detail in that book talking about that. Again, come see me at Next Steps Table if you want to get a copy of one of those books. But it's not good parenting at all. David was not the best dude. And yet, in spite of David's failure, the wisest person who ever lived sits down to talk with his son, and he doesn't focus on his father's failures. So Solomon in Proverbs 4 sits down to talk to his son and he doesn't focus on the failings of David. Instead, he focuses on the greatest gift that his father gave him. His father gave him a great gift of wisdom and a great gift of love for God. And so buried here in the book of Proverbs, there's actually a bunch of teaching from David. And it's pretty powerful when we look at it. So Solomon has sat his son down and says, sit down, listen to me. I'm going to tell you some things. And then in verse four, here's where it jumps off. This is Solomon talking to his son in verse four. He says, my father taught me, take my words to heart, follow my commands, and you will live. Get wisdom, develop good judgment. Don't forget my words or turn away from them. Getting wisdom is what? the wisest thing you can do. Seems like a Captain Obvious statement, but it's pretty powerful. Getting wisdom is the wisest thing you can do. And whatever else you do, develop good judgment. 
if you prize wisdom, she will make you great. Embrace her, and she will honor you. She will place a lovely wreath on your head. She will present you with a beautiful crown. So as you can see, those words are in quotation marks. So buried in Proverbs chapter 4, verses 4 through 9, these are actually the words of King David as retold through Solomon to his son. Get wisdom. It's the wisest thing you can do. Develop good judgment. And if you do, wisdom is going to take care of you. Wisdom is going to protect you. Wisdom is going to care for you. As we read about Solomon's story in 1 Kings, Solomon has this encounter with God, and we don't have time to really read the scripture or get into it, but you can read the book of 1 Kings and you can unpack this for yourself. But essentially, Solomon has this encounter with God where God asks him, hey, whatever you want, I'll grant it to you. You just ask. And Solomon doesn't ask for money. He doesn't ask for women. He doesn't ask for power. What Solomon says is, God, give me wisdom to lead these great people of yours. God, give me knowledge and understanding so that I can lead. And of course, God gives him more wisdom than anyone could ever need. And God gives him all of the money and the power and all of that stuff. And as I connect these two stories, I can't help but wonder if David's teachings were what influenced Solomon to ask God for wisdom. We read that a lot and overlook it, but here we see in Proverbs 4 that Solomon is clearly saying, when I was young, my father sat me down and he said, wisdom is the wisest thing. Getting wisdom is the wise. What is wisdom? What is it really? Wisdom is simply the application of knowledge. How many of you know some things? All of you do, right? We know some things. I know that it is dangerous to drive at a certain rate of speed on certain roads. Because we're recording this, I will not incriminate myself by giving out the speeds nor the roads, but I'll just say I know it's dangerous to drive on a certain rate of speed on certain roads. It's if one false move, one person breaks too fast, the weather gets gets crazy, I know that I could end my life, I could wreck. That's knowledge. I have knowledge of the way physics work. I have knowledge of the way speed works and stopping works. But I speed anyway. Don't sit there in judgment like you don't because I followed some of y'all here today. You know that you did too, right? We, we speed all, all the time. Wisdom is knowing how to apply the knowledge that I have. And so Solomon, he's the wisest person who ever lived, yet just like his father, he eventually struggled to apply the knowledge that he had. So David knew his failures, and David knew where he struggled, and I think that's why David told his, his son, hey, the best thing you can do as a man is learn how to apply all of the stuff that you know. And putting it into my own terms, I like to think of that conversation of David saying, listen, young man, I know a lot of things, and in spite of me knowing a lot of things, it doesn't mean I always did the right things with it. So you want to know what the wisest thing is? It's to go seek something that's going to help you apply all of that stuff that you have. A lot of us know a lot about the Bible. We know a lot about God, and yet we find ourselves day after day after day struggling and stumbling over the same issues because in spite of how much we know, it doesn't translate into what we do. And that's why we always try to make sure we give you some type of clear step, some type of action. How can I put this into flesh? How can I apply what I'm doing? Because wisdom is the wisest thing. Solomon didn't always do the right thing at all, but still he tried to lead his sons as best as he could. Jump down to verse 20 of Proverbs chapter 4. This is Solomon now talking to his son. He says, my child, listen to me and what? 
do as I say, and you will have a long, good life. My child, pay attention to what I say. Some of y'all had that conversation this morning. Listen carefully to my words. Don't lose sight of them. Let them penetrate deep into your heart, for they bring life to those who find them and healing to the whole body. So this is David's son, Solomon, talking to his son, passing on the lessons learned from his dad. He knew better than to say, do what I do. He knew way better at this point in his life to say that. His father wasn't perfect, David wasn't perfect, and Solomon knew that he wasn't perfect. Yet, he had enough sense to still try to lead his family. Men, none of us are perfect. We all blow it, but we can't let our imperfections keep us from trying to lead our families into the right direction. Make sense? Just like we can't let what's messed up with our earthly fathers distract us from what's great about our heavenly father, we can't let our frailties and brokenness as men keep us from always wanting to lead our families in the right way. I'm, I can't go back and fix my mistakes, so I can't stand on a high horse and tell my sons, don't you ever do this because, well, I've done that. But what I can do is say, listen to my words. Trust me. Learn from me. I've made this mistake, and I can tell you how to avoid making that mistake if you would just trust in what I'm saying. And that's essentially what's happening here in Proverbs 4 between Solomon and his son. He's trying to instill the same wisdom in his son that David instilled in him. The wisdom in Proverbs 4 that's, that they're talking about, this is more than just a cognitive supremacy of an intellectual or, or some maven. This isn't head knowledge they're talking about. This wisdom is a supernatural gift that offers a spiritual protection uh, when applied properly. The bottom line is this. Wisdom is the application of knowledge. And he talks about discernment. That's the application of wisdom. It's, it's basically what he's saying is it's not enough for us to acquire wisdom. We have to do something with it. Wisdom is as wisdom does, essentially. Verse 23, he says, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. This is very important. Above all else, guard your heart. So David told Solomon, above all else, get wisdom. It's the wisest thing. And now Solomon is telling his son, above all else, you must guard your heart because everything in your life flows from your house. Above all else, uh, guard your heart. It means with all diligence, pay attention. So the writers of the Old and New Testament, they had a lot to say about the heart and protecting our heart. And, and when I say heart, biblically, they mean your innermost being, not the muscle that keeps you alive. Although you should guard that too. Medical professionals tell me you should pay attention to your ticker, but that's not what they're talking about here. The authors of scripture, they, they say a lot about the heart. They say we should love God with all of our heart. They say we should hide God's word in our heart. They say that we grieve with our heart. We cry out to God from the depths of our heart. The prophet Jeremiah, he even warned us and said, the heart is deceitful above all things. So the, the Bible has a lot to say about the heart. And as we're going to unpack in part four of this message, we'll see that David's heart, the condition of David's heart spiritually gets him into a lot of trouble. And unfortunately, the same pattern happens later on in the life of Solomon's. The condition of Solomon's heart, even though he knew all of the right things, he didn't always apply that wisdom and his heart becomes compromised and it messes him up in the end. Solomon, as a young man, he was humble, 
He was centered on God. He was dependent on God. But the more Solomon received power, the more money he received, the more women were around him, the more his heart became compromised. Solomon went from seeking the one who could satisfy to seeking all of these other things and acquiring all of these other things that in and of themselves could never satisfy, and it gets him in tons of trouble. Solomon was so smart, right? You, you wonder, how can a guy who's so smart mess up like this? He wrote the book of Proverbs. He wrote the book of wisdom. Most of the Proverbs are attributed to him. He wrote the book of love in the Bible, the Song of Solomon, a very, very, very romantic and love-saturated book. He wrote that book. When he was humble and when he was chasing after God, he, he was so full of wisdom, so full of insight. But it's one thing to have wisdom. It's another thing altogether to apply that wisdom to your life. You can attend conferences. You can speak at conferences. You can write books and have all kinds of information and seminar, but never actually live that stuff out yourself. You can know and say all the right things. Here's, here's the bottom line. You can possess a warehouse of wisdom and still blow it in the end. And that's what we learn from the life of Solomon. You can possess all the information in the world and still blow it in the end. It's not about what you know. It's not about what you acquire. It's about the condition of our heart. If ever there was a man who could find meaning outside of God, it was Solomon. He had intelligence, he had industry, he had accomplishments, he had all of the things that we have been told are important as men, as leaders to acquire. He used his gifts to acquire more stuff and have power and and even have a season of peace and discovery and experience pleasure and, and all of that stuff. And he didn't do it in moderation, he does it in excess. And so here's the truth. If Solomon couldn't discover the secret to life, then it can't be done. If the wisest person ever couldn't discover some hack to to do it all on your own, then we have to understand there's no little life hack. There's nothing we can do that's going to exempt us from going the same direction as Solomon and even as David did in a little bit. Unless we seek the only one who can satisfy, unless we apply the wisdom God gives us, unless we guard our hearts, we end up headed in the same direction. So in Solomon's case, his greatest strength became his greatest weakness. How many of that is true of you? Your greatest strength, whether it's your personality, your intellect, your desire for more, your desire to win, your desire to be right. Sometimes what we can use as a strength, maybe on the job, in the boardroom, it absolutely messes us up when we get to our homes. It becomes our greatest weakness. Instead of Solomon embracing the wisdom of God, he began to trust in himself instead of seeking after God. And when I say Solomon began to trust in himself, this is the Solomon who said, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, God, and he'll direct your paths. The Solomon of Proverbs 3, if he wrote Proverbs 3, is the one who eventually begins to trust in himself and in his own way. His, his pursuit of happiness became his God. His pursuit of stuff and comfort became his God. And a lot of people blame Solomon's fall on the women that were in his life, but basically it was his disobedience to God that gets him in trouble. So 1 Kings chapter 11 shows us the end result of Solomon's life. It says this, verse 1, now King Solomon loved many foreign women, 
Besides Pharaoh's daughter, he married women from Moab, Amnon, uh, Edom, Sidon, and from among the Hittites. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them. Who's the them? All those people that Solomon had married. You must not marry them. That seems mean. That seems harsh. That seems racist. Why would God do that? Well, remember, context is king. Let's not read 21st century meaning into this ancient passage. Look what he says. Here's why you must not marry them. Verse 2, because they will turn your hearts to what? Their gods. So he's saying, don't marry them because you can't save them. They are going to turn your heart to their way of worship. Yet, Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. Verse 3 is one of the most surreal verses in all of the Old Testament to me, because I just can't wrap my brain around this. I love my wife, Jamie, so, so dearly, would do anything for her. I can't comprehend this next verse. Look what it says. He had how many? 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. We might have some young people uh, listening in. So what's a concubine? We'll just say that's a, a female with benefits, right? That's a friend with benefits. Uh, I'll let y'all parents have that conversation at home. 300 of those plus 700 wives. That's 1,000 females in his life with access to him that he has intimate relationship with. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines, and in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. In Solomon's old age, they turned his heart to what? Worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord his God as his father David had been. Remember last week we talked about David, the man after God's own heart, David the worshiper, David who in spite of his, his flaws and failures, David who knew there is a God and I am not that God, Solomon did not follow suit. When we pursue things that don't satisfy, we ignore the one who does satisfy. Let me ask you, what are you pursuing? What are you chasing after? You may not be caught up in the opposite sex, but you might be having an affair with work. You may be addicted to your vocation. You may be chasing security through financial well-being. You may not be having an affair with work, but you are obsessed with your looks. You may not be obsessed with your looks, but you cannot stop thinking about how to make the next dollar, how to sell the next thing, the next trip. And there's nothing wrong with looks and things and fitness and stuff and money and security. There's nothing wrong with any of that stuff. There's nothing wrong with sex and marriage. However, those things in and of themselves will never satisfy alone. Never. When we pursue things that don't satisfy, we ignore the one that does satisfy. So how can we avoid making some of these mistakes? Some of us, if you're like me, we've made these mistakes already. So for us, it's about how do I recover from blowing it like Solomon has, has messed up and, and has David's messed up. And again, we'll see next in the next message how much David messed up. But how do we avoid that? How do we fix that? How do we, how do we protect our heart from all of the junk that wants to poison us? How do we value wisdom? How do we apply what we know? Let's look back in Proverbs 4, and we'll actually see a pretty awesome practical roadmap that Solomon gives to his son to help him apply all of the things that he told him that he needed to do. Proverbs 4, verse 24. Ready? Here's what he says. Avoid all perverse talk. Stay away from corrupt speech. 
So what he's saying there, this is not so much about, uh, in our modern context, we would hear that and think he's talking about dirty jokes or he's talking about cursing. That's not what he's saying here. He's talking about speech that doesn't glorify God, speech that doesn't lead to life, speech that poisons yourself. Stay away from that type of nonsense. Verse 25, look straight ahead. Fix your eyes on what lies ahead of you, meaning don't chase way too far down the road and don't get stuck looking too far into your past. Instead, fix your eyes straight ahead. When I was in the army, I had to run because they made me, but I absolutely hated running. When we do our physical fitness test, depending on the unit you were in, you could either run that course on some type of cross-country type of course, so maybe a straightaway with some turns, or if, if Satan was your first sergeant, you had to run it on a track. Anyone have to deal with that? Satan as the first sergeant, you got to run your PT test on a track. There is very few things that I can compare to the hell that is running two miles for time after you're exhausted from push-ups and sit-ups around a track. If you're a track and field person, God bless you, you're used to that. But that is not me, as you can tell. That's not me running around a track like that. It's grueling. Because no matter what you do, you now have to run eight laps around this thing if it's a standard quarter-mile track. And so some of the tips that they would give us, especially the, the slower runners like myself, is don't get too far ahead of yourself. Don't look to the left and to the right. Just look a little bit in front of you, and then one step at a time, just keep moving. At one place I was stationed, we ran that test on a straightaway, and I thought, well, this is going to be better, except on the straightaway, if I looked at the finish line, it felt like it was getting farther away the harder I ran. It's like I'll never get there. So the same thing applied. Hey, don't look down there, crazy. Just look about five, six feet in front of you, ten feet in front of you, kind of towards the ground, just, just far enough so that you don't fall and trip. But that way you can laser in and focus, and it actually worked. So look straight ahead. Fix your eyes on what lies before you. Verse 26. Mark out a straight path for your feet. Stay on the safe path. What does that imply? It implies that it's very easy to get off of the path and do the wrong thing. It's very easy to just take one step that's going to trip you up. So he's telling his son, mark out the path and then, hey, listen, young man, stay on the path. And then verse 27, I love it. Don't get what? Sidetracked. Keep your feet from following evil. Very, very practical stuff. This is Solomon saying, I don't know what else I could possibly teach you, son. I've given you all the tools. All you have to do in your application of it is stay on the path. Pursue the right thing. Pursue the right person. Pursue God. Pursue his wisdom. So what do we learn from that? How do, how do we apply that to our life? It's very simple. First thing we need to do is shut our mouths. Shut your mouth. That's the first thing you need to do. I'm not talking about, hey, be quiet. Shut your mouth. When you open your mouth, two things can happen. Something can come out and something can go in. And I think this applies to both of those things. Shut your mouth to talk that leads to death. 
So speak life, speak love. Don't speak failure. Don't think about the the way your father may have messed you up and don't speak that stuff like that's my destiny. Don't speak the things that don't line up with God's word. I'm not talking some like name and claim mumbo jumbo for you here. I'm saying it's the truth. If you walk around and your theme song is I'm a loser, that's what you're going to produce in your life. It's just the truth. If you talk about how much you've blown it and you live so much about how everyone's let you down and I'm never going to be a success. If that's the way that you talk as a father, as a mother, as a parent, as a leader, then that's going to be the result in your life. Instead, speak life, speak love. Don't speak the, the perverse speech that he's talking about, the things that lead to death. So speak life. Shut your mouth to anything don't feed on anything. Remember, stuff can go in when we open our mouth. Don't feed on anything that's going to poison your heart. Part of guarding our heart, it all starts right there. The Bible says that life and death is in the power of the tongue. So we have to watch what we say. This week, choose to speak life. Find that one good thing. In spite of what your situation is with your earthly father, in spite of where you may have blown it as a parent, as a leader, in spite of all of that stuff, find that one good thing that you can speak. We talked about this last week and a little ritual I do with my sins. What is the thing that you can celebrate this week? Second thing is this, fix your eyes. Fix your eyes. This means I need to look straight ahead, focusing on the right thing. The Apostle Paul talks about this way, way later on as he's talking to the church at Philippi. He says, I forget what's behind me and I strain towards what's ahead of me. He's fixing his mind and his eyes on what's forward. So he's looking to Jesus, not his failures, not his past, not where he's blown it, not even the things that are tempting him around him to lead him astray. Instead, he's looking to Jesus. So if you're applying one of the steps we had last week, remember I said you got to get you some worship music in your life, get you that journal where you talk about the good things God has done for you. This is all a follow-up process to that of fixing my eyes. And now I'm on the path. Now I'm worshiping in spite of everything. Everything's falling apart in my life, and I'm still choosing to worship anyway, but it's really tempting to want to get off the, the, the track. That's where this week you got to fix your eyes. Get yourself into into that worship space. Get yourself into those great stories of what God has done for you. That Bible verse you might have written on your refrigerator, you got to fix your eyes on what's straight ahead. And then finally, watch your step. Watch your step. Very simple. How do I watch my step? I can only think of one surefire way that I can watch my step to make sure that I'm applying wisdom, that I'm guarding my heart, that I'm, that I'm pursuing the one who will satisfy. And it's actually found in the book of Psalms, the song book of Israel, the longest chapter in all of the Bible, Psalm 119. Here's what it says. Three verses in Psalm 119, verse nine, verse 105, and verse 133 says this. How can a young person stay pure? By obeying your word. Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. Guide my steps by your word so I will not be overcome by evil. We talk all the time about an important next step being I need to get into 
God's word. I need to get into the Bible. I need to get into the scripture. We do that in community group, but we have a lot of resources to help you. At our Next Steps table, we have free Bibles if you don't have one. We've always got pastoral staff there that can help you, give you some areas to, to read through maybe. We use the Version app, the Bible app on our phones. We have reading plans where you can actually make friends with people who are a part of one church. You can find me, just look for me, send that friend request, and I'll read a plan with you if that's something you want to do just so that you know you're in here. Because the author of Psalms is very clear. Here's how I can keep my way pure, by living according to the word. Because the word lights my path. The word helps me watch my step. The word is what helps me guard my heart and shut my mouth and all of those great things so that I will not be overcome by evil. My father passed away suddenly when I was 14 years old. He went to bed sick one night, and by 2 p.m. the next afternoon, he was gone. It was one of the worst days, the worst day of my life. My father was my compass. He uh, was my sense of discipline. He was my sounding board. I could talk to him. He was a very, very strict, strict parent. But he was all business, but he was never abrasive. I always knew that he loved me. I always knew that I could run up to him and, and give him a hug. But he also had a voice and a look that said, I will end you, boy, if you don't do the right thing. I, great respect and reverence for my dad. And yet, he never destroyed he was one of the most laid back and peaceful and gentle people that I'd, I'd ever known. And he taught me how to think. Like, my dad taught me how to really think. My dad was a very cerebral person. He could hang with the, the greatest on all kinds of topics, whether it was medicine or family or politics or life in general. And, and he was never condescending to me because I was young. In fact, my dad welcomed those talks. Last couple of years of my father's life, uh, as I was a young teenager and middle schooler, we would have hours of conversation about deep things. Hey, Dad, I read about Malcolm X today. Let's talk about him. And so my dad would give me a lecture on the civil rights era and all those things. And Dad, hey, the Bible says this one thing. I don't understand it. And he would break it down for me, and we would learn, and we would study together. But none of that is what made my dad a great dad. Obviously, he showed me how to love my wife and how he loved my mother and loved us. But, but none of that is what made my father a great father. What made my father a great father is that he led our family to follow Jesus. He wasn't perfect at all, but the one truth, the one consistent thing, our compass is he led us to pursue God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. My father's been gone for a long, long time now. He passed away in 1994. I've lived longer without my father than I did with him. Yet, I am who I am because of how God used him to shape me. He taught me to pursue the one and only who will really satisfy, and that's Jesus. And I've not been perfect, and my father wasn't perfect, but I'm just doing my best to do the same thing. And men, that's all we're called to do. Ladies, that's all we're called to do. That, that's all we're called to do is help that next generation, help those people far from God connect to him. It's so simple. Ian Bounds, he said, the church is looking for better methods, but God is looking for better men. How can I be a better man? Let me apply this wisdom. Let me pursue God. Let me model that. And I'm telling you, we change the world. You want to be for Clarksville, there's no better way than we can be for Clarksville than to be men, to be women, to be people who truly love God and are pursuing him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This isn't a call to perfection. It's a call to just head in that direction. Let me say this to the men. It's Father's Day. If, if you want to be the greatest, then you have to serve your family well by following Jesus. Simple. 
Thanks to technology and social media, anyone can be famous. Anyone can have 15 minutes of fame. Anyone can become a meme or at least act like they're famous. But you know, that kind of fame is absolutely fleeting. I want to be great. I want to be famous in my own house. I want to leave a legacy that lasts. I want to be great where it really counts. And that starts with pursuing God with all of my heart, soul. When we pursue things that don't satisfy, we ignore the one that does satisfy. But I know when we take steps towards Jesus, he always, always comes through. He always satisfies. And that's the greatest gift that we can give to our families. Let's pray. God, thank you for loving us so much that you uh, gave yourself, you sent your son to die for us that we could have eternal life and we can have that life in you. I pray for every person listening to this message today that they would know that you are for them, that you are truly a great father and a good father who cares for us and who never leaves us and who never forsakes us. God, your loving kindness and your mercies, they're new every morning. I pray for the person struggling on this day of all days uh, with those dad issues, that this would be the day that they truly give themselves to you. They take that step towards you. In spite of how messed up things might have been with their earthly father, God, that they would trust in you, their heavenly father, to lead them and guide them and protect them and keep them. Help us all to live up to this great challenge, to set the example for that next generation by just following hard after you. That means when we mess up, God, we come to you. We say, God, I've blown it. I've messed up. And you forgive us like you always do. God, when we are winning, we don't get prideful and full of ourselves. Instead, we give you the glory and we point it back to you. Help us to show this world, God, that you're for them by us being for our families, being for our communities. And I thank you so much that you don't leave us alone to do that. You give us your word and your spirit and this great community called the church. We love you in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.